We'll hear argument next in uh, Jones versus Bach and Williams versus Overton. Mr. Andre. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In these three cases, each of the three petitioners filed administrative grievances with the Michigan Department of Corrections. The Michigan Department of Corrections conducted investigations and issued final decisions on the merits of petitioners' grievances. Nonetheless, a year and a half later, each of petitioners' complaints was thrown out of federal court without leave to amend because petitioners failed to satisfy one of the Sixth Circuit's judge-made corollaries to the PLRA's exhaustion requirement. None of those three corollaries find any meaningful support in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. In fact, they contradict the Federal Rules, nor do they find any support in administrative law or habeas law, the two areas of law to which this Court looks for guidance in interpreting the Prison Litigation Reform Act. Finally, the overwhelming majority of the circuits that have considered these questions have rejected them all. I'd like to begin with the heightened pleading rule that the Sixth Circuit applied here. The Federal Rules of Civil Procedure require a plaintiff to simply provide a short, plain statement of the basis on which his or her claim will lie. The Federal Rules of Civil Procedure do enumerate certain kinds of allegations that a plaintiff must plead with specificity, and those are enumerated in Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 9C. But exhaustion is not one of them. Accordingly, uh, suppose, suppose the district court finds in its experience that 80 percent of the claims are ones that are unexhausted. Just, just assume that. And the district court said, you know, the, the only way I can figure out the good 20 percent uh, from the 80 percent that are ultimately going to be dismissed is to have a motion for a more definite, an order for a more, more definite statement, because I, I'll do a sua sponte under 12E, I think. Could the district court do that? I, I think that would be correct, and that would be consistent with this Court's habeas jurisprudence, in particular and Granberg. The, 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 court, the Court could ask for a, a, a pleading which set forth the facts of exhaustion. I believe that's true. Right? Why isn't this, this just, this, this, this is just the same? That the Court has said, you know, in order to, effect, to make our screening function efficient, uh, we just have to know about exhaustion. Well, first of all, when Congress created the various screening provisions in the PLRA, it, it, it noticeably omitted exhaustion. It clearly had exhaustion in mind when it enacted the PLRA. The term exhaustion appears both in 42 U.S.C. 1997 E.A. Well, but I mean, if you concede the district court could do it on an individual cases or in most cases, why can't, why can't the Sixth Circuit do it? That's my, my question. Well, what, what, sets, what sets the Sixth Circuit's rule apart from, I think, the hypothetical uh, you propose and also from this Court's habeas jurisprudence is that in both of those scenarios, the, the plaintiff, the prisoner, is given a chance to respond. In the Sixth Circuit, if they don't satisfy the heightened pleading rule at the minute, at the instance that they file their initial complaint, they are out. There is no leave to amend, and that's what happened in this case. In Petitioner Jones's case, he filed a complaint, and he actually did allege that he exhausted his administrative remedies. He said, I, I exhausted my administrative remedies. I filed my step one grievance on this date. I received a denial on that date. And he went, he went down the list through all three steps. The briefs point out that a number of district courts have form complaints that are often used in these cases, and that these forms call on the prisoner plaintiff to address the issue of exhaustion. Now, if, do you think there's something wrong with those forms? And if a prisoner fills out the form and reveals in filling it out that a claim was not exhausted, is it improper for the district court at the screening stage to dismiss the case? With respect to the form, I don't think that the form is improper, but I think it would be improper for a court to dismiss a prisoner's case if the prisoner failed to fill out the section of the form that, that asked him uh, about exhaustion, because exhaustion is an affirmative defense in both administrative law and habeas. And there's no indication in this statute that Congress... If it's an affirmative defense, then why is it justified? Why, why is it proper for, the, for a district court to have a form that calls on the plaintiff to negate the affirmative defense? I think the district court can ask the plaintiff pretty much whatever the district court likes, but, but whether the district court could, could dismiss a case for failure to comply, failure to respond to that question, that's another matter. Well, we know under the statute they can dismiss a case because it's frivolous, right? Absolutely. Regardless of the, the substance of a claim on the merits, if you know that you just ignored the exhaustion requirement, uh, isn't that a frivolous claim? Oh, we would certainly concede that if it is clear on the face of a complaint that a prisoner has not exhausted his or her administrative remedies, then that claim can be dismissed. And I guess the way it would operate, and I haven't seen a case like this, but it would be where a prisoner says, 
I didn't exhaust my administrative remedies, and I have no excuse for failing to do so, but please, District Court, take mercy on me. And in that situation, the District Court could say, well, there's absolutely no way you can, you know, possibly prevail on the merits, so your, your, your claim is out. Probably the reason they do this is that there are lots and lots of claims by prisoners in Federal courts that are hard to decipher. They don't know what it's about. They don't want to put the defendant to the burden of coming in in every single complaint when it's quite a good probability it's about nothing. Uh, th- that's the kind of reasoning that would lead to a rule like this. So, so uh, and then you have a statute, and the statute says, indeed, there's a special power here to dismiss if it's frivolous or doesn't state a claim or malicious. So why isn't this just an exercise of the six circuits or a court's ordinary subsidiary rulemaking powers? They're trying to figure out how to manage their docket. Well, the, the problem is that it conflicts with Federal Rule Civil Procedure Rule 8. And as this Court has repeatedly said, including as recently as last term in Hill v. McDonough, the Court will not impose a heightened pleading requirement absent an amendment to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. So your, your point would be that they can do this uh, if uh, we uh, amend the Federal Rules. If it's a problem, take it to the Rules Committee. I, I, I think that's correct. I think that's correct. But it didn't help. And if we amended the rules that way, in, in effect, it would no longer be an affirmative defense. It, it, uh, I mean, by definition, an affirmative defense gets raised by the, the defendant and so on. So if we amended the federal rules in practical terms, it would be like adding an element to the claim. Right. Or if the court were to add uh, PLRA exhaustion to the, the Rule 9C. Yeah. Um, yeah. What Rule 8 and the normal rules weren't addressed to the unusual situation under the PLRA where the district court has an affirmative obligation to screen on its own before the defendant even gets involved. So if, in fact, just to follow on Justice Kennedy's hypothetical, 80 percent of the cases have this exhaustion problem, why isn't this a reasonable means of facilitating the screening obligation? It may be a reasonable means, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's permissible, because Congress had exhaustion in mind when it enacted the PLRA, and noticeably absent from all of the PLRA screening provisions um, is the term exhaustion. Well, but you just told me earlier that if it was a case in which exhaustion is required and not done, that would be a frivolous claim, and the statute does refer to frivolous claims. So the District Court or the Sixth Circuit is just saying, we know that in a large number of cases, they're going to be frivolous because they've ignored the exhaustion requirement. We just want to try to find out which those cases are to, f- to fulfill the screening obligation, which takes this out of the normal Rule 8 uh, type of case. Right. I, I, I think I understand. Um, I think it goes back still to the fact that there's not a clear congressional expression to take these cases out of the federal rules. And Califano v. Yamasaki, we believe, is instructive on that point. In that case, the Secretary uh, of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare had argued that Section 205G of the Social Security Act, which used the term individual, somehow took those, uh, those judicial review proceedings out of the operation of Federal Rules of Procedure 23, the class action provision. And this Court said, no, we, 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 can't con- con- we cannot read the word individual as such a clear expression. I mean, it, it may have been Congress's policy to, to have individual claims be addressed uh, one by one, but, but you have to find that clear expression in the statute, and that clear expression is not here. Well, what about 1997? E.G., which prohibits, uh, seems to prohibit a case from getting beyond the complaint, not even to the answer, unless the district court finds that the plaintiff has a reasonable opportunity to prevail on the merits. Doesn't that clearly take this out of the normal pleading procedures? I, I, I don't think so, Justice Alito. We, we've exhaustively researched that language, the reasonable opportunity to prevail on the merits uh, language, 1997 E.G., and the only courts that construe that language are courts construing 1997 EG, and they have universally found that that provision simply summarizes the other screening provisions uh, terms. So frivolous, malicious, fails to state a claim, or seeks uh, relief from an immune defendant. And, and we, we can't really think of what, what else Congress would have had in mind, because while it's like the preliminary injunction standard, it makes no sense that Congress wanted a prisoner to satisfy the preliminary injunction standard before requiring prison officials to respond. Would your answer be different if amendment were allowed? I mean, isn't the, isn't the problem in substance here quite apart, and I, I don't mean to dismiss your arguments from, from the rules, but leaving the, the argument from, from the, uh, the text of the rules aside, 
there wouldn't be a real problem here in substance if, if, the, uh, if the circuit law allowed amendment, would there be? I, I think if the circuit were to, the Sixth Circuit were to allow amendment, it would, it would certainly mitigate the situation. Um, it, it's, it's our position that the screening provisions can't overrule Federal Civil Procedure 15 either. Um, but the, the problem we see with even doing away with the no amendment rule but, but keeping in place the heightened pleading rule is that we're talking about prisoners, um, prisoners who don't have a lot of access to materials. They may have uh, to legal materials. They may have great difficulty um, holding on to their, their, their formally filed grievances. Mr. Andre, didn't you have in one of these cases that the exhaustion was spelled out by the defendant? There was a complaint that alleged exhaustion generally, but not in all detail. Then the answer attached every piece of paper that came up at all three levels of the grievance procedure. And then the plaintiff said, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to copy all those documents and make them my own. And nonetheless, that case was dismissed for failure to allege exhaustion in sufficient detail, although the record made it plain that there had been exhaustion. The rule that you are opposing would operate that way. If you don't allege exhaustion in detail, it doesn't matter that the deficiency has been made up by the answer. You go out. That wasn't that the decision in one of these cases? Yes, that was in Petitioner Jones's case. And that's that Petitioner Jones's case is a great example of how both the heightened pleading rule and the no amendment rule uh, work together to result in, in a prisoner being unable to cure any problem with his or her initial complaint. Well, you talk about the lack of statutory direction on the um, uh, first two points, but there's a very explicit statute on the third question. It says no action shall be brought until administrative remedies are exhausted. And yet you say the action should be allowed to be brought even if there are unexhausted claims in the complaint. Well, I, I, we concede that an action that contains unexhausted claims, so a mixed action, shouldn't have been brought in the first place, but it's there. And the question then becomes what to do about it. And the language no action shall be brought, it, it, it's very common uh, in administrative exhaustion schemes. Uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act uses uh, almost identical language. The Immigration and Nationality Act uses very similar language. Um, Title VII is This is a very different statutory scheme. This is designed to address the problem of an overwhelming number of frivolous complaints that result in the fact that meritorious complaints can be overlooked. You've got a haystack and a needle problem here. And if you allow the action to continue, um, that doesn't do anything to reduce the number of filing of claims that, as you say, should not have been brought. Well, I guess I, sh I should be clear at the outset that we're um, by no means advocating that a prisoner can shoehorn in unexhausted claims uh, with exhausted claims. So the unexhausted claims must go. Um, well, right, but you provide, under your approach, no incentive for the prisoner to leave those claims out. But instead, what a screening function turns into an editing function. The district court is supposed to just excise out the unexhausted ones, but allow the exhausted ones to continue. Well, it's been our experience, and, and from reading the case law, it appears that prisoners don't intentionally try to, to shoehorn in um, unexhausted claims, their exhausted claims. It's typically based on an innocent mistake, a failure to understand either uh, the, the, the particular circuit with it, within which they uh, are housed, with a difficulty in understanding that circuit's exhaustion law, difficulty in understanding um, the prison grievance procedures that they attempted to comply with, and perhaps even being further confused by the fact that prison grievance administrators uh, seem to apply prison grievance regulations, um, it, it, I don't want to say an ad hoc manner, but inconsistently. And so when they bring these complaints that are mixed, they actually are, 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 are intending to bring a fully exhausted complaint, but then after a little bit of judicial review, uh, it becomes clear that they didn't exhaust it. Well, why does it hurt if you dismiss the whole thing? They could just refile the other. Well, I, it, it hurts for a couple of reasons. Uh, well, and, uh, it hurts under the Sixth Circuit's rule because they do not allow prisoners to amend. So, uh, No, no. What would happen is you just dismiss the complaint. So I, I, re I guess, again, the reason they have these things is they get a certain number of complaints. They have no idea what it says, to tell you the truth. They don't know what the claim is. They don't understand it. There are a lot of things written here. The person wasn't represented. It's hard to make out. And, and if for the judge thinks, I have to go through all these papers, I have to figure out if there's something here that was exhausted. We know something happened. There was something exhausted. 
So the simplest thing is just dismiss it. Now, the prisoner can always refile it with the parts that he has to now figure out were exhausted. Now, and it doesn't hurt because just refile it. Well, it doesn't hurt if the it doesn't. Is that true? Or what, what happened? Well, I guess there's, there's two different versions of the, of the total exhaustion rule as it's termed. There's the Eighth Circuit's rule, which is with leave to amend. So the complaint is dismissed and the prisoner can file a new complaint without the uh, unexhausted claims. Then there's the Sixth Circuit's rule, which is the most draconian of all the versions. And that says the entire action is dismissed. Prisoner must institute a new action. And so why, does why is that draconian? It's draconian because there, by the time the prisoner refiles his or her action, uh, there could be a statute of limitations problem. The prisoner may not be able to bring those claims anymore. In fact, the Fifth Circuit in Long Do you have to file a new uh, filing fee? Not in the Sixth Circuit anymore and not in the Fourth Circuit. Um, How many prisoners pay the filing fee in the first place? Oh, I, I believe they all do. Um, if they qualify. They're not entitled to IFP status? If they get IFP status, all that means, well, first of all, they only get to do that three times or to have three actions dismissed. Um, before they lose their IFP status. A, is that a draconian rule, do you think? You have to have three actions dismissed before you have to pay the filing fee? Uh, no, no, no. I, I mean, but that's not really an issue in this case. But, but even if they qualify for IFP status, they still have to pay the $350 filing fee. It's just taken out in installments. And so for a prisoner who makes $2.50 a day or $2.50 a week, it, it, it is costly for them. Well, to I, I guess this is probably not a question for you, but... Uh, but a question for uh, your, your friend on the other side. Uh, uh, you, you can ask, uh, why, why does it hurt? You can also ask, why does it help? I mean, what, what good does it do uh, to, to bounce the whole thing back when you're just going to have them filed again? I think that's exactly right, Justice Scalia. Well, the reason it would hurt is because it's difficult for the judge to go through this complaint that he can't quite make sense out of, and it puts the burden on the prisoner to go through and figure out what he really wants to say. That's why, that's why it's easier for the judge just to dismiss it than to go through many pages, what could be many pages, with a fine tooth comb trying to figure out if there's anything here that was exhausted. And the other incentive is, if you have adopt your rule, the incentive on the prisoner is to put in every possible claim, even if it's not exhausted, because maybe it'll get through, maybe it won't. And if it doesn't get through, no harm. He doesn't even have to pay another $50. But I think at least, in, at least un, under that scenario, the district court still only has to take one look at the case. Um, and then it can move forward. It deletes the unexhausted claims. Um, so from a judicial efficiency standpoint, I think delete the, the Ortiz v. McBride rule out of the Second Circuit, which is the rule that we're advocating, um, is, is the cleanest approach. It takes the choice away from the prisoner. It puts the choice with the district court. And it allows the district court to delete off any unexhausted claims. and. In most instances, post Woodford v. No. Is there any argument that if the state uh, does not insist on exhaustion or, or plead exhaustion, uh, that it just drops out of the case? If the state resolves the case on the merits, even though there's no exhaustion, can the federal court hear it? Is there general agreement about that? I think there is. Uh, the, the circuits before Woodford v. No were unanimous that PLR exhaustion is not jurisdictional, and Woodford v. No, this court confirmed that. Um, and so to the extent that, that the PLR exhaustion is an affirmative defense, um, then it would operate uh, like other exhaustion schemes in administrative, and, uh, administrative law and habeas where um, it is waivable by the other if, side. If we accept your first two arguments, that is, there is no heightened pleading rule, and you don't have to name the specific defendants in the administrative <coughs> grievance that you end up naming in your complaint, if you prevail on both of those, then isn't the, the third question, uh, have you, what happens when you haven't properly exhausted, is really not live anymore in this case because you will have properly exhausted. So why should the court go on to answer what would happen if you hadn't properly exhausted? Respectfully, Justice Ginsburg, it's, it's, it's unfortunately more complicated than that. If the first question in, in the Jones case, the heightened pleading rule question, is resolved in favor of Petitioner Jones, then total exhaustion 
is a live issue because the Sixth Circuit, as an alternative holding, uh, justified the dismissal of Jones's complaint on the total exhaustion ground. Um, and I guess on the other side, if the Court were to resolve the identifying the defendant's issue um, ag- sorry, against the But the Sixth Circuit obviously would have been wrong. If he has totally exhausted, and they had gave that as an alternative ground, but if they're wrong on the first one, and he has exhausted, that's the end of it. The Sixth Circuit, and, and it's, it's, it's not very clear from its opinion because it's an unpublished opinion, but the Sixth Circuit appears to have adopted the magistrate judge's finding, which was based on uh, respondents' uh, motion to dismiss, that Jones substantively, for lack of a term, didn't exhaust all of his claims. So, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm not being clear. That was the case where the where the defendant, the state, put isn't wasn't that the case where they put in all the papers from the administrative record? Yes, but they also argued that Jones failed to exhaust his administrative remedies on everything but his First Amendment retaliation claim, or what they termed his negative yeah, work. But they were wrong about that. If if there was exhaustion in the case. And if there's no rule that you must name every single defendant that you en- end up suing, if those two are established, again, wouldn't we be dealing with a moot question? I, I, a moot in this case? I, I, I don't think so, Justice Ginsburg. I think, it, I think in order for the total exhaustion issue to be moot, the heightened pleading requirement would have to be resolved against Petitioner Jones, and the naming the, the defendant's issue would have to be resolved in favor of Williams and Walton. Um, I, I charted out on a matrix and, and, and verified it a couple times. Turning to the naming issue, if I could, since we haven't addressed that yet, um, the Prison Litigation Reform Act simply sets a floor of, of how much specificity prisoner must provide in his or her grievance. It does not require what the Sixth Circuit held here, which is that as a matter of federal statutory law, a prisoner must have identified every individual whom he or she later sues in federal court. Um, This is kind of endemic or or flows logically from the Court's decision in Woodford v. No. Woodford v. No says that prisoners must comply with grievance procedures. You would have no problem, I assume, if, if the state simply requires that you name the individuals. I guess, broadly speaking, no. In certain cases, yes. To the extent possible, I suppose. Right, exactly. If in Michigan they have a then, fi- then there would not be exhaustion unless he had named the, the individuals. I, I believe that's correct. I mean, yeah. although I, I guess. Uh, so we may, may not be litigating about a whole lot here. No, right. I think really the question is an X or not X question. It's does the PLRA, as a matter of federal statutory law, require individuals to be named in the underlying grievances? And the PLRA is entirely silent on that question. And this Court's decision in Sims v. Apfel lends further support uh, to the proposition that a a federal court cannot go beyond what particular administrative um, agencies' rules require. Um, I realize that was a plurality decision, but I think the petitioners win under either the plurality opinion or under Justice O'Connor's concurrence. Um, And so, yes, Justice Scalia, we we agree with you that it's simply an X or not X question and that down the road, perhaps, uh, the Court could address um, the scenario where uh, a prison system amends its rules to require individual defense to be named and then perhaps a prisoner can't comply with that based on the short grievance filing deadlines, and then there's a question of whether the administrative remedies were actually ever available to that particular prisoner. There no and further- you have, in, in one of these cases, the person has said, I didn't know who, who was the person who said I couldn't have the operation until the prison identified him. That's correct. Um, I believe you're referring to either the Williams or the Yeah, Walton. so it, even if you had a, a, a rule, a reasonable rule that named the people that you know, that you have, that would not encompass someone. In, in, in two of these cases, the, the, said, the plaintiff, the prisoner said, I didn't know who those guys were until they were identified. Right, and so to that extent, the prison grievance system worked because the prisoners provided as much detail as they possibly could, um, and then the prison grievance system went out, conducted its investigation, 
kind of brought, broadened the universe of relevant facts, and then made a determination. They happened to determine that petitioners' grievances were not meritorious. Obviously, petitioners disagreed with that assessment. That's why they sued in federal court. But the prison grievance system worked. To borrow from the Third Circuit's decision in Sproul v. Gillis, the cooperative ethos between inmate and jailer was achieved, because so long as the prisoner provides sufficient information for the grievance system to go out and answer any unresolved questions, and so long as the prison grievance system avails itself of that opportunity, then, then the claim is exhausted. If there are no further questions, I'd like to save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Andre. Ms. Oliveri. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. <clears throat> Congress enacted the Prison Litigation Reform Act to deal with the flood of prisoner litigation that was coming into the federal courts, obscuring the uh, treatment for meritorious claims brought by all litigants. The purpose of the Act was to unburden the courts from dealing with this flood of litigation that largely was without merit. The purposes for the Act were to increase the quality of the litigation, decrease the quantity of the litigation, allow the states to address first the issues that the prisoners have problems with, and to develop an administrative record to facilitate judicial screening. And all of this would result in increased judicial resources for all litigation uh, that has potential merit. The invigorated exhaustion requirement does require total exhaustion. The statute, the words of the statute itself confirm this. The statute states no action shall be brought. May I ask you, what is a typical administrative record that is developed in these proceedings? There's never a transcript, is there? I've never seen a transcript. Typically, it's uh, one sheet of paper. The inmate states what the problem is, states what he did to try to resolve the problem before filing a grievance. Um, And then there's a space at the bottom for a response. Frequently, the response is right on that page. Sometimes the response indicates see attached. If there's a lengthier response, there may be a, a separate page. Similarly, if the prisoner can't put is all there, of his... Is there normally a statement of reasons for the denial of relief? In these, or are they just denied in many cases? For the most part, they attempt to address the issue. Um, are there opinions a, a page or two or just a sentence or two? What is, it, what is typical? Typically, there... How... how how much help that will give the judge later on in, you know, in, in processing the case. In the last 12 months, there have been 13,000 grievances processed by the Michigan Department of Corrections at the third step, and that's for people who appeal all the way through to the third step. So there are many more than that before that. Some of the responses can be very detailed. They can go on for a full-page typewritten single space. And Other responses of, are — How many of the 13,000 are of that variety? I haven't read all 13,000. But typically the response would be about a half a dozen lines. I see. And the other question, of the 13,000 grievances, how many did result in litigation? Last — in the last year that ended June 30th, 12 months we had approximately 200 cases. 200 out of 13,000. Correct. Thank you. And in the previous years, we had somewhat fewer, so it's, it's sort of going up. But, it, you know, it's between 160, 180, 200. This year we're on that same pace. Can you explain what, what the disincentive or, or are the reason for uh, there being just 200 uh, lawsuits out of the 13,000? These 200 are ones that we were served with. That doesn't include the ones that may have been screened out by the courts, and we were never served with them. I see. This only includes the ones where a defendant was actually served with process. So, uh, so if basically, you, I mean, you've heard the questions so forth. It seems to me that my questions and probably others were based on certain empirical premises that might be true, might not be true. So why isn't this a question for the Rules Committee? So why not go to the Rules Committee and say if you you know, if this really is a burden and so forth, rather than doing something unusual, which is to make uh, exhaustion uh, something other than an affirmative defense, to dismiss the whole complaint, to have what appear to be rules that reach draconian results in a few cases anyway. When it's a dismissal without prejudice, I 
It's improper to characterize it as draconian. You no, know, it could be, because the statute of limitations could have run. There so, could so it depends, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But my basic question here isn't this really a matter for the rules committees rather than for the Sixth Circuit to go off on its own. This Court in Nietzsche versus Williams took a look at the previous version of the um, informer pauper statute, and that statute allowed sua sponte dismissals for only two reasons, frivolous and malicious cases. Under that, in that opinion, the Court indicated that when it's a sua sponte review for those two issues, you don't get the benefit of the adversary process that's embodied in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Congress, recognizing that even in Nietzsche, the Court indicated that the the federal courts were being flooded with prison litigation, much of it meritless, expanded the categories that are now subject to sua sponte dismissal. And those include um, suing someone who's immune from liability or failing to state a claim. And also beating up. doesn't include failure to exhaust. It doesn't specifically include failure to exhaust. And if you follow the normal rules that that's an affirmative defense, uh, then, then the burden would be on the prison to do just what it did in the Jones case. It's another, why, why would we say, depart from the normal rule that makes exhaustion an affirmative defense, when we know that the party best equipped to provide the information about exhaustion is the prison, as the Jones case showed so well. They, the prison had all of the grievances, they had all of the responses, and they presented that to the court. So the prisoner is less well-equipped to attach those papers than the prison is. So why isn't it not only um, traditional to have exhaustion as an affirmative defense, but makes the most sense because the one most likely to have the information is the prison. Congress dealt with that in 1997 EG, the waiver of reply provision, which confirmed what the 1997 EC dismissal provision provides. This is all a screening uh, situation for the, the federal district courts designed to move these cases that have been proven largely meritless quickly through the system rather than but bogging the courts down. If, if Congress meant to reverse the ordinary burden on pleading exhaustion, why didn't it put that in? It was expanding the categories and it included failure to state a claim, which had not been there before. And it included you sued somebody who's got immunity. But it didn't include exhaustion, so why should we read that in? Well, exhaustion is the very first provision, with, and it's... Uh, it's not in the screening. You, it doesn't say you screen out for failure to exhaust. It's not specifically there, but the, the exhaustion provision is a precursor. It's a precondition. You can't even get into court until you've exhausted because it says no action shall be brought. But there are other provisions. I mean, that no action shall be brought. Take a statute of limitations that reads, no action shall be brought after two years or something like that. There's no action shall be brought. Does that make it no longer an affirmative defense? The courts have interpreted statute of limitations consistently to be in the category of an affirmative defense. The problem with that is this statute, the PLRA, is the new regime for prison litigation, not for all the litigation across the board. And in the waiver of reply, the Congress specifically took the defendant out of the equation, requiring the court to determine whether or not the case has been exhausted, whether or not the plaintiff has failed to state a claim, and the other criteria that are all in, in that screen. Well, the, all the criteria are there, but failure to exhaust is not. Not specifically, but a failure to exhaust could be construed as a frivolous but last time, case. And you said before the statute was changed, there were only frivolous and malicious. And the court says, we could see from the face of this complaint that it fails to state a claim. 
too bad, it's not a ground for automatic dismissal. So Congress said, yeah, it should be, and put that one in. The Congress put the screening provision as number one, where you cannot even bring a case to court unless you have exhausted administrative remedies. So it's unimaginable that that would not be a ground for a sua sponte dismissal when you can't even bring the case until you've exhausted. Ms. Olivieri, you also rely on the no action shall be brought language to justify dismissal of the entire action, all claims, even though only some of them uh, have not been uh, exhausted. Uh, do you have any, even a single example of the many other instances where that language is used in the federal statutes, and, and there are many of them, do you, do you know any other case where it's been interpreted that way? So, so that uh, uh, claims that are perfectly valid uh, will not be retained, but rather the whole action will be dismissed? Habeas corpus is another situation where there is a provision that says no relief shall be granted, no writ shall be granted, absent exhaustion of, or ex exhaustion of state court remedies. Um, there, um, in the habeas situation, it is a little bit different than in the PLRA. Pardon me. Because there is a stay in abeyance provision in habeas, which was in this statute before Congress passed the PLRA, and Congress actually took out the stay in abeyance provision. It, it all serves the purpose that Congress intended, which was to allow the courts to quickly screen these cases. If you look at EA, C1, and C2, they give the court many options for doing what is most judicially prudent in that particular case to preserve resources. What, what, what is the basis in the habeas uh, context for dismissing the, the entire habeas application, despite the fact that some of the uh, claims have been exhausted? Is there any statutory basis for that, or is it just, uh, just judicial efficiency? There is... It's, I believe it's under the exhaustion requirement. The court has the option of dismissing the entire action. Actually, I, I believe there the petitioner gets the option. Do they want to proceed on the exhausted claims, or do they want to drop out the um, unexhausted claims? And that's not uh, — the statute doesn't settle that. Our decisions settle that, right? So why should we deal with that, the two, any differently? It's not as though Congress wrote the statute differently. We said, if you can't proceed with unexhausted claims, so you have a choice. Either you go out of the federal court and exhaust everything, well, even you don't have to go out because you could use the stay in abeyance, or you just lop off the unexhausted claims, stay in the federal court on the ones that you have exhausted. That's all made up by this court. So why should the court react differently in the PLRA than it did? Why should it fill those gaps differently than it did in habeas? I think because Congress did revoke the stay and abeyance provision no, you're, you're, um, in the PLRA. You, and the your answer is it shouldn't, I think. I think she's making your argument for you. Pardon me? I think she is saying that we should treat this area the same way we treat habeas, so that the whole the whole case should be dismissed rather than just the individual claims, which is what I think you want. That is my argument, okay. yes. Well, don't, don't fight it. Okay. <laughs> I was suggesting that, that in habeas, it is the prisoner's option to say, I don't want the whole case dismissed. I will amend my petition so that the court will have, will retain the exhausted claims. You are saying, not like habeas. I don't want it to be like habeas. Because if it were like habeas, the prisoner would have the option to stay in the federal court as long as he lopped off the unexhausted claims. You don't want it. You don't want it. 
you don't want it to be like habeas. I, I don't want the, the prisoner to be allowed to choose to lop off the unexhausted claims, that is true, or to amend to delete them, because then there is absolutely no incentive for the prisoner to improve the quality of the litigation by stopping and thinking, being careful to exhaust all his claims, and being careful to plead only claims that are exhausted. Same arguments apply in habeas, don't they? But in habeas, you have the stay and abeyance provision that was specifically not, not removed. If, not if you had your way. Removed, well. I mean, I think you were making an argument that, that would, would preclude that, too. Right. So, so it seems to me that if we accept your uh, your response to Justice Ginsburg, we, we better go back, and to the extent that we can do anything about it, we better toughen up habeas so that these things get thrown out more, more readily. Habeas does deal with a person's liberty, whereas the PLRA is simply dealing with people basically, for the most part, trying to get some sort of relief, either injunctive or monetary relief, that does not deal with their basic freedom. Um, so in that respect, I would have thought, I mean, one reason to require total exhaustion is because I, I would assume the prisoner may get sufficient relief if the claims are exhausted that he doesn't feel the need to go forward with litigation. But I guess that's only true if the exhausted claims are still alive. And how many, when we're talking about unexhausted claims, are those typically claims that are not going to be available or are they claims that may generate relief once there is exhaustion? It could be, I mean, it's obviously both. I mean, there, there are claims that are partially exhausted when the inmate files the lawsuit. He may finish exhausting and get the relief that, that he's looking for without ever pursuing the, uh, the case in federal court. And, and sometimes uh, it's impossible to complete the exhaustion. I assume that in some cases the, the time limit for the last appeal will have expired, right? That can also be the case. And under Woodford versus No, now that they have to do proper exhaustion, there will be more of those cases where um, it probably, there wouldn't be anything left to do after it's dismissed, except for the plaintiff to be the one to go through the maybe 20 claim complaint and call out the claims that are not exhausted, rather than putting that burden on the court, which is contrary to Congress's purpose, to streamline this System. May I ask you about it? The, another question you haven't really touched on yet, the requirement that the uh, prisoner name every defendant that he intends to sue in the exhausting, in the uh, internal procedure. I just, I just like a little uh, uh, help on just exactly what happens. A prisoner doesn't get the kind of medical care he thinks he's entitled to, and he only knows it because either the, the low-level person says, no, the doctors said you can't have it. And he, he brings a, a proceeding, in, uh, an informal administrative proceeding, and they deny relief. And then later on, when he wants to sue, his lawyer happens to find out the name of the doctor who was involved, and there are several uh, levels of authority making the decision. Does he have to start all over again to name those people, or what does he do? Medical care is... Well, for one thing, prisoners do have counselors, and so if they're not sure who's responsible for something, that's one of the things that they're supposed to do is talk to their counselor to find out, you know, I'm having this problem, I'm not getting surgery, why am I not getting surgery, who do I talk to, who do I complain to? Um, so that's one, one, re one way to resolve the problem. And, and what if he does talk to the, the uh, a prison guard and the guard says, I don't know? I don't know who's responsible for that decision. That's in the warden's office or something like that. What is the prisoner supposed to do? If the prisoner makes inquiry and just simply can't find out who it is, then he should state that in his grievance and indicate that somebody in the medical department is denying me the surgery. You know, I've talked to Dr. So-and-so. He's recommended that I get it. Somebody's saying, no, I, I haven't been able to find out who that is. And likely during the grievance process, he will find out who it is, because one of the responses what will probably What if he doesn't? One of, his, one of his grievances, nobody told me. Is he, is he out of luck then? And I, I think there may well be situations in which prisoners don't have complete access to all the facts that go into a decision denying them 
medical care, for example, or say a prisoner has a religious problem, he can't get the diet he wants or something like that. But before he can sue, under your view, if I understand it, he has to find out so he can name the people in his administrative complaint. He has to make a good faith attempt to find out. And if he really, you know, if he says, I've asked my counselor, he's not able to provide me with that information, then he will get a and response on the grievance. what is the purpose the of that requirement? As long as he's made known in the administrative proceeding what his problem is, and they've been had a chance to investigate it and determine whether it has merit or not, why should he have to name the individuals who made the decision in order in, in, before he can sue them when he later finds out who they are? That goes back to 1997 EG, the waiver of reply, where it says that no defendant can be made to respond to the complaint unless the court can certify that the prisoner has a reasonable opportunity to prevail on the merits. It talks about defendant there. Also, you get a case like well, Mr. But it's, not, it's a standard law of agency. It doesn't make any difference. The prison is denying him his rights. Just as Stevens said, it may be three or four different people who concurred. Do your rules say that if he can't find out unreasonable efforts that he doesn't need to? Or do the Sixth Circuit rules say the, the, Sixth Circuit the allegation rule. of names is not required? The Sixth Circuit rule basically, basically says name or identify. And, for instance, here with respect to Mr. Um, Mr. Jones, he didn't, he didn't name the classification director. He used the title. Nobody had anything negative to say about that. We know you're talking about the classification director. It's Mr. Morrison. We've only got one. Not a problem. Uh, the Sixth Circuit rule is basically name or identify. Am I, so am I right that the Sixth Circuit rule requires the, the identification for complete exhaustion, requires the identification to be made at the first stage? The Sixth Circuit rule does require that. So, in a, and make sure I understand this. In a case, let's just say at, the, at stage one, he, he names Dr. X. And for whatever reason, uh, in the course of the response, perhaps, uh, he learns that not only was Dr. X involved, but Dr. Y was involved in that decision. So if he is denied relief at stage two, he says X and Y. And he identifies X and Y all the way through. He gets, he gets nothing satisfactory to him, uh, so he goes into federal court. Is, is it correct that under the Sixth Circuit rule, they would say you have not completely exhausted because at stage one, you did not mention Y? Is that correct? The Sixth Circuit probably would say that that He'd be out of luck with what, respect what to what justification why. is there for that? I mean, for for two stages through the prison administrative process, why has been identified? Uh, the prison has taken action on the merits on the assumption that why is in fact a at least a, an allegedly responsible party. What reason is there in a federal court to say that the exhaustion is incomplete because he didn't mention why back at stage one? The Sixth Circuit adopted that rule probably in a case like the Walton case here, where Mr. Walton had a problem with his slot restriction and said, you know, Deputy Warden Bobo put this restriction on me. Goes through the grievance process, and they say, Bobo didn't put that on you. Guerin put it on you. That's at step one. They, they give that response. He goes then into court after exhausting through three steps, still saying, you know, they're discriminating against me based on race with the slot restriction. Yeah, but that, Never, that wasn't my hypo, because I, as I understand it, in, in that case, he keeps going after Bobo, period. And in my case, at stage two, having learned something, he identifies why. Uh, and um, I, I, so I don't see the just, what is the justification? I think if, I was probably giving too much explanation, but I think from my understanding of how this should operate, he's all right in that case to sue Mr. Guerin, who actually did put the slot restriction on him, and he had the wrong name at step one. No problem. We got the right name at step two, or excuse me, at the end of step one, and he pursues it. I think he's got a good claim against Mr. Guerin. The Sixth Circuit might not think that's true, and I well, think it's because... Well, in my case, you, you said you understood that the Sixth Circuit would say that although he had identified both X and Y, 
at stage two and at stage three, and there had been merits adjudications at those stages, understanding who the, the named respondents were, the Sixth Circuit would nonetheless say you have failed to exhaust because back at stage one you mentioned X but not Y. What is the justification, if, if, if that is still your answer, what, what could the justification for that be? I don't think the Sixth Circuit had that type of case in front of them when but they But that apparently, the if I understand your answer, is what the result would be. And is there, and, and I, I, I don't want to, you know, make, make it hard for you. I think you're having a hard time finding a justification for that result, and I certainly can't find one. Can you think of any? I'm saying there is none. I'm saying he's got a good claim against Mr. Guerin. I'm saying well, how about why, in my example? Has he got a good claim against why? Why? In the federal court, in my hypo. Okay. He named X. Sixth now. Circuit says no. Out he goes. I think uh, why is Mr. Guerin? Why is Mr. Guerin? Yes. Okay. So he's, he's got a claim against why. Even though the Sixth Circuit would throw it out for failure to exhaust. I disagree with the Sixth Circuit on that. Okay. But I don't disagree with the Sixth Circuit in that when he actually got to court, he sued four other people who were never mentioned in any grievance by anybody. You How about no, who, who really did not know who was the doctor who said no surgery? He I, didn't know, and then the prison told him. And he comes to the court, he says, thanks, prison, for telling me. And so he names that person in his complaint. The, Fifth Circuit, the Sixth Circuit said that's no good. He didn't put it in his initial complaint. He had only 15 days to find out, and he didn't find out. I'm agreeing with you that the Sixth Circuit, both that the Sixth Circuit would say that that won't fly and that, in fact, it should fly. So Jones did it properly exhaust then. If you just made that concession, then Jones properly exhausted. Jones properly exhausted against the doctor who actually denied the medical treatment, the, the surgery. Yes. But Jones never served, unfortunately, that particular doctor, Dr. Pramstaller. Counsel, you mentioned in your brief that there's been a change in the Michigan grievance policy with respect to naming individuals. What is the consequence of that change for our ability to address that claim? It'll, it'll be the same basic philosophy that I've been stating here. I mean, it's going to be a name or identify. Tell us who you've got a problem with. Don't tell us you have a problem with one person and then go into court and sue six other people who may be the people who actually responded to the grievance because MDOC didn't know that you had a problem with this person. One of the objections to the Sixth Circuit rule from your friend was that this requirement of naming the individuals came out of thin air. And now we have that requirement articulated in the grievance policy. Does that make a difference? It does make a difference in proper exhaustion. It's I not an absolute policy, though. It isn't that if you haven't named him in the first administrative step, you can't name him in the complaint. That's not Michigan's new policy. Michigan doesn't say you have to name him at the first step. It says when you file your grievance, you know, name who Isn't it is there you have a problem when you couldn't find out. And if they say they can't find out and they've made reasonable inquiry, and it is, you know, somebody at the top of the chain of the medical, um, that, that's understandable that they may not know because they may have never seen Dr. Pramstaller. Did the, did the Sixth Circuit have the current Michigan policy before them when they issued their decision? Not on these three cases, no. It was the previous policy which indicated that the inmate had to be specific as, basically be specific or specific as possible, something along those lines. Would I take it uh, in, from your answer to Justice Ginsburg that back in my Dr. X, Dr. Y case, uh, if they got to, under the new policy, if they got to stage two and why was identified, uh, that, that Michigan would pr process the complaint. It, we wouldn't throw it out. We would process the grievance, absolutely. The, the yes. grievance. Yes. yes. Yeah. <coughs> Finally, I, I would ask the Court to keep in mind that the entire purpose of the Prison Litigation Reform Act is to relieve the courts of the burden. And the screening process that's set in place by the statute allows the court many options. Now you say the primary purpose is to relieve the courts of the burden rather than to determine whether there's merit to the grievances? The, the purpose of the Prison Litigation Reform Act was to, to reduce the, the volume of litigation, period? To reduce the volume to provide more resources for meritorious Is there any interest in cases? determining whether the complaints have merit? 
I mean, I think you must be interested in getting rid of 11,000 complaints and reducing them down to 200. I would think that's more important than saving the court some time. There must be — you must have some interest in determining whether the complaints have merit. Well, we, we do have an interest. We respond to every one of those at three steps, and they never end up in litigation for the most part. So the grievance process works totally outside of what litigation goes on. Um, it does resolve complaints. But the Prison Litigation Reform Act allows the court to either but these rules that are challenged here are primarily to benefit the courts, not the, prof- the process. They're to, to benefit the courts by taking resources that had previously been spent on meritless cases and spending those instead on cases with merit to efficiently screen these cases so that the courts are not spending a lot of time um, asking us for responses and so forth. If it's a failure to state a claim, the case can be dismissed right there, all without prejudice. There's nothing draconian here. They can be rebrought. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Andre, you have five minutes remaining. Justice Ginsburg, you asked earlier about who's better equipped to, uh, to plead and show exhaustion. And it's certainly our position that the Michigan Department of Corrections or prison grievance administrators are, are absolutely better equipped to do so. How is that? The prisoner is the one presumably who knows best whether or not he filed a grievance or not. The prisoner may know best whether or not he, he or she filed a grievance and whether or not he appealed, but the prisoner may not know the precise dates on which he or she did so or have copies of the grievances anymore. This, this really kind of brings the heightened pleading rule, not just uh, whether it's an affirmative defense or a general pleading rule, to the fore. Prisoners are prisoners. They get moved around. They get put in administrative segregation. They are, they're subject to repeat searches. Um, they have great difficulty in maintaining possession of their belongings. On the other hand, the Michigan Department of Corrections keeps copies of all of the grievances Denials and this seems to me a bit of a stretch to say the prison, which has how many prisoners under their jurisdiction, is in a better position to know in the individual case of an individual prisoner what that prisoner did or didn't do with respect to the grievance process. Surely the prisoner is in the best position. He knows what he did, or at least what he's going to allege. He may be able to avert generally, but with specificity, uh, there are many cases in which he won't be able to. But, but the Michigan Department of Corrections policy directive makes clear that it has to maintain these records for future FOIA requests. And in many institutions, it has to track them in a, uh, in a computer. And as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, in the Jones case, they were quite able to bring forward the proof of exhaustion that satisfied, uh, that would have satisfied the court that Jones had exhausted his administrative remedies. Jones Get, just got thrown out of court essentially in a game of gotcha because he didn't attach it to his complaint in the first instance. I think most importantly, from a judicial efficiency standpoint, making exhaustion and affirmative defense makes sense. That means that the lawyers in the state attorneys general, uh, in the state, uh, in the office of the state's attorneys general, are going to be able to put forward the best arguments as to why a claim is or is not exhausted. It requires, it requires response in all the cases. And as this subsection G indicates, part of the uh, purpose of the Act was to eliminate the necessity of responding to frivolous complaints. Why, why you know, you, you have to go through the uh, uh, requesting a response from the government when, in fact, there's nothing to this complaint because there's never been any exhaustion. But to go back to Justice Ginsburg's point earlier, that Congress could have included unexhausted claims among uh, those, those kinds of claims that a court could screen out and dismiss or among those claims for which uh, a court could well, — That's not- a different argument. But, I mean, don't, don't tell me that it, it isn't more efficient to, uh, uh, to have the, uh, the prisoner say at the outset whether it's exhausted or not. It certainly is. Oh, again, it may be more efficient to have them avert generally, but as far as having a prisoner comply with a heightened pleading requirement, that, that we don't think that that makes sense. We're talking, again, we're talking about prisoners here. If it's, uh, an, if it's an affirmative defense, doesn't that mean that the, the prison is going to have to file and the individual defendants are going to have to file an answer in every case and assert all of their defenses? Either just their, respond, even if there's, a, there's no uh, non-frivolous non-exhaustion argument that can be made, they're going to have to go through all of that in every instance? 
they would have to file an answer or motion to dismiss, raising whatever affirmative defense they want to raise, but at least it gives them the choice and it gives them the opportunity to frame those arguments as opposed to putting it on, putting that burden on the court. Moreover, if the court were to adopt respondents' uh, reading of the screening provisions, those screening provisions would swallow up every single uh, affirmative defense enumerated in federal rules and also those not enumerated. With respect, with respect to the naming of the individuals, is the, that claim moot because of the change in the policy? Oh, not at all. I mean, I, I, I can't see how, uh, how respondents could argue that. Uh, I thought your main argument before was they invented this requirement without any basis, but now it's an actual requirement in the grievance procedure. Right, but it wasn't when these claims were decided. Um, and that's where I think Sims v. Appel comes into play. Uh, under Justice Thomas's plurality opinion, the key is looking, at, uh, is looking at kind of the nature of the proceedings. And if it's informal and inquisitorial as opposed to adversarial, then a court cannot impose uh, a requirement beyond that which the administrative agency itself required at the time the claims were before the agency. Under Justice O'Connor's concurrence, she was, concur- she was concerned about fair notice. And certainly here in these cases, uh, petitioners Williams and Walton didn't have fair notice that a year and a half later, this, this State of Michigan, after going through the entire grievance procedure and never relying on their failure to be uh, sufficiently specific, can then come into federal court and say, aha, you didn't. Future prisoners now do have fair notice because the grievance procedure says name the individuals, states, names, places, names of all those involved. Yes, yes, they would. They would. And, and again, there, there would certainly be constraints to too rigid enforcement of, of that particular Is provision. Is there no leeway built into the rule itself? That if you don't know, I'm sorry, I didn't. Isn't there the the current rule? Isn't there some leeway for cases where the the prisoner simply doesn't know the name? I, I'm not aware of any, Justice Ginsburg. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.